am Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair and let's begin. Meredith Ireland. Meredith Ireland is a Korean-American attorney and writer born in Seoul. She is a Rollins College and University of Miami School of Law alumna. She writes young adult and children's books. Her debut novel, The Jasmine Project, was a junior library guild gold standard selection, a best book of 2021, according to Boston Public Library, and it received a starred review from Booklist. Her follow-up, Everyone Hates Kelsey Miller, was named a best book of 2022 by both Forbes and Seventeen Magazine. Her short story will be featured in You Are Here, a middle grade anthology. She will also have a short story in Adoptee to Adoptee, a YA anthology coming next fall. Emma and the Love Cell, her debut middle grade fantasy, will be out in the winter of 2024. Meredith resides in New York with her two children and a country fair goldfish who will probably outlive them all. Welcome, Meredith. Hi, thanks for having me. Everyone Hates Kelsey Miller was named a best book by Forbes and Seventeen. You write a book and you think it's good. So it's really <laughs> rewarding when a magazine agrees with you. I hope that it resounded with people based on just the friendship aspect of it being so central to your life, especially when you're a teenager. Why does everyone hate Kelsey Miller? So she has messed up and she has lost her childhood best friend. And Rihanna is not speaking to her and has moved across the country, which that she did know was coming, but she doesn't know why. So she's trying to unpack why her friend has ghosted her, in addition to trying to find her friend in kind of an ill-conceived road trip down to the University of Pennsylvania with her arch rival from school. When I've gone to writing conferences, I've heard people say, you can't swing a cat without hitting a lawyer. Tell us how you transitioned from attorney to writer. I was going to go to med school. Then I took a year off and I said, I don't think I want to do the MCAT again. So then I went to law school and I really did like it. But then I had children and being a mom with a little one at home and trying to make associate hours was just way too much. And I I had always said that it was going to be a priority to raise my children. So I was staying home with them, but my brain needed more. It was turning into mush and I was Mm -hmm. pointing out the anachronisms and bubble guppies. And I'm like, this is not a way I'm going (laughs) to survive. So I started writing and then my stepfather became sick with lymphoma and I started writing as a way to kind to deal with it, I guess. So my original manuscript was actually adult. It was a a road trip to go scatter ashes, which happened after he was cremated. So that's pretty much how I got on the publishing track. I'd always written, but I didn't think to pursue anything until later. What do you think it was that took you from the adult track to the youth track? So I read a lot of YA and I really liked what they were putting out. Like, especially at that point, there really was not a lot of diversity in adults. It's gotten a lot better. I liked the cutting edge part of YA. I liked who the audience is meant to be for YA. I think the books that you read when you're young affect you in a way that doesn't necessarily hit the same as an adult. And I loved the opportunity to tell a story to that audience, to take what I've learned from my mistakes and hopefully be able to either prevent somebody from making the same mistakes or at least let them know that they're not alone. 
I've heard for people that are new at writing, you know, we're told to read across all genres, but oh, yeah. that YA especially has a lot to teach us. Why do you think that is? First of all, the diversity aspect is great. But second of all, you have to have a very pronounced voice and you need to have a really fast paced plot because you can't go wander a field for 60 pages like you can in an adult and keep everybody with you. So it really does teach you to like stay on beat, stay on track, keep the story moving along, you know, meanwhile, giving your characters a unique voice and it does take some time to figure out where your voice is. What, what we did here on the adult manuscript was she sounds a little young. And I'm like, well, that's <laughs> not terribly surprising being that I read so much YA. I write women's fiction and my manuscripts end up coming in around 92 to 96,000 words. Mm-hmm. About what do yours come in? So Kelsey was short. Kelsey was published. It's 200 and something pages. I want to say it finished at around 70. Yeah. Jasmine was weird because Jasmine is over 400 pages long, but it's because of the group text that just makes it, yeah, yeah. because it's only 80,000 words, but it's 400 pages. When you were reading middle grade and high school, what were those lessons that you hope to amplify through your novels? Oh, I never saw myself reflected on page in anything I read. The canon that I grew up with is much different than it is now. I certainly never saw anybody who is a transracial adoptee. Like if I saw my, if I saw someone Asian, they weren't Asian the way I identify as being Asian. Um, So like, that's really important to me to tell stories with protagonists who are like me. Authors have been queer since there have been authors, but there wasn't a ton of queer lit out there either. So Emma and the love spell, she has a crush on her best friend who's a girl. And that whole story is actually magic stands in as the allegory for queerness, that her parents are okay with her magic, but they're just really scared how other people are going to react to the magic. And maybe it's just a phase and she shouldn't tell anybody and she should try to hide it, you know, just to take those lessons and kind of like solidify it into a really fun story. But that has a message of just loving yourself and forgiving yourself. What do you think is happening to open that door to better representation? Well, usually what winds up happening is one person kind of gets through and then they want the next one. They want, you know, Jenny Han, they supported and they made her big name. And then they want someone in the vein. The other publishing houses want somebody in their vein. You know, they wanted that next Angie Thomas. They wanted that. And once they did put out the diverse books, they realize that when we draw from other mythologies, when we draw from other cultures and traditions, we're actually enriching all of literature. When I read Rebecca Roanhorse and I read Trail of Lightning and uh, Black Sun, and she's drawing off of native origin myths and all these powers, and I've never read anything like that. And I'm like, well, there's a reason I've never read anything like that. It wasn't put out or wasn't readily available and supported. So it's really interesting. I think it just enriches everybody as far as reading it goes. And it's certainly nice for both, you know, the, what do they call it? Window and mirror. I think that that's really important. Sarah Rashawn writes romance. She did one of the Twisted Tales for Disney. And she said when she was growing up, the Black romance novels were in an area, what did she say? It was like African-American studies. Yeah. Like you had to go there to get books that were written by Black authors or about Black characters. You know, and I think when you are white, 
and everything is white, it becomes the default. You don't notice. And I think that's the thing. It's like a lot of us never noticed that that was the case. And you hear it now and you're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like, yeah, you shouldn't have to go to a nonfiction section to find stories about people who look like you. That just doesn't make sense. You have written a short story that will appear in Adoptee to Adoptee, an anthology that's coming later in the year. Mm-hmm. So do you mind telling us what your adoption story is? Sure. Um, actually, I, they renamed that book now when we become ours. Yeah. Hmm. And then You Are Here already came out. That was middle grade short story. Both characters are adopted. I was adopted from Korea when I was eight months old. I was staying with a foster family in, I think, Seoul. There is extremely little known about where I came from. I don't know the names or anything. I don't know what city I was born in. I don't know what time. They think they know what day, but like, I don't know how accurate that is when they don't know what time. They think maybe Seoul, but it's not that confirmed. And Korea in the 80s was sort of that way. Adoption was a huge industry, Mm -hmm. kind of slowing down, at least in that country, but they made a lot of money. So the origin of not all babies is known at this point. I was adopted by a fantastic family from Brooklyn, and I lived in Staten Island, and I have an older sister. We're not genetically related, but she's five years older than I am. Unfortunately, my father died when I was five, and then my mother remarried, which is how I got a stepfather. That's it. I grew up down in New York City, and for the longest time, because the prevailing wisdom back then was don't see any color, like treat your child as if they are the same as you. And and honestly, it's a really nice idea, but it does cause some identity issues. I like, I remember when I was talking to my mother about being a person of color, she's like, but you're not. And I'm like, "Mm, but you know, and I'm, you know, I'm in my, yeah, I'm in my thirties and I'm like, we're going to still do this. I'm like, no, I am. (laughs) <laughs> but to her, she doesn't see it that way. She only yeah. sees me as her daughter. Yeah, it's been interesting because it's been an interesting ride into learning about, almost as a stranger, Korean culture mm-hmm. again, which is both truly, I mean, I could have citizenship there. It's truly both my native culture and something that's brand new and I'm learning as an outsider. So Korean barbecue is delicious. Like, oh, yeah. But it's, that's not something I ate until I was like in my 30s which yeah, it means I deprived myself of really good food <laughs> a long time. But my family was Italian. So oh, like I cook funny. Italian. Yeah. Everything that I make is Italian. When I knew another language, it was Italian. I'm actually now working on, <laughs> sounds like so many books. It's really not a middle grade horror. And I basically wrote my children, I guess, into this story, but they're going to be biracial. So cool. it'll be yeah. fun. Even though my kids will never read it because it's hard and too scary. Whether we admit it or not, we always write our kids into our stories, just different pieces, different parts. I did see that there is a DNA, some type of consortium that's trying to help people find their roots, but the participation level on that side of the world is not as great as it is. Does that go on in Korea? I think they did start it. I know that they Mm -hmm. started that kind of a project. I haven't signed up for it yet, but if they get it going, it would definitely be something that I'd look at. But like, like people have said like have you done ancestry dna or whatever yeah. and I'm like it's not it's not accurate when you're adopted yeah <laughs> i'm like because they tend to go by family trees and that that doesn't help i don't know though i did ours i found out that my grandmother had a whole other 
father that nobody knew about this guy that was married and had a huge family somewhere else. And you look at the DNA and there's no doubt that kind of surprised me. Although on the other end, I found out my dad's dad, it, I knew he had two wives. I didn't know he had five. So you just <laughs> never know what you're going to get. You have a lot of projects going. You've got kids and you're a busy mom. So how do you manage it? What is your schedule like? <laughs> it used to be really hard because they weren't both in school full time. Ever since they've been in school full time, once I drop them off or the bus picks them up or whatever, I've got that time to write. Recognizing diminishing returns and recognizing what time of day works best for you for production is really, really crucial. So I'm at my most productive for drafting at night. I'm at my best for revising during the day, like during midday. So the 10 to 2 window is great. They're in school. I can revise. So that works out really well. Drafting is sort of, I get this thing, I call it story brain where like, I feel like a large percentage of my brain just stays in the story. And then I'm left with like the 20% to function. And it's not a great way to live. So I try to write as quickly as possible. I try to draft within a month if I can. I have a mom who loves her grandchildren. So that's great. So she helps sometimes where I'm like, "Ah, I have this deadline. I need them out. (laughs) They're also, you know, at the age right now, they're, um, almost 10 and almost 12. So they are at that age where they, they've been invited for a sleepover. They can go play with neighbor kids. It's not nearly as intense as when they were like two and five and trying yeah. to find sometimes you're right during that. That was uh, that was much harder. But, you know, I'm blessed because this is my full-time job. So I'm not mm-hmm. trying to balance this and a day job. And I don't know how other writers do that. I really don't. I don't either. So my friend Jeff Zentner, he wrote a Serpent King and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. won all types of awards. Mm-hmm. He like writes on the bus to and from work. <laughs> like he's an attorney and writes on the bus to and I'm like, you wrote award-winning <laughs> books on the bus. He's like, yeah, it's a good time to like you have nothing else going on and you have that hour and yep. What you were saying about the story brain because I find that when I'm struggling. I know that I'm not where I need to be in my story until I get the story brain. And it's when I lay down at night and the story mm-hmm. starts taking over or I get up in the middle of the shower. night. Yeah. Shower, whatever. I mean, it's, it's there. I've published two and I've got, I don't know, I've probably got six manuscripts finished, but the one I'm doing now, I know that I'm in it now because I wake up with it. I go to sleep mm-hmm. with it. I drink and that's where I need to be. Of course, I don't have little kids running around. I mean, the worst thing that happens is you know, one of my dogs doesn't get taken out when they're supposed to. <laughs> uh, your friend Jeff, for him to be able to silo that until he's on the bus is really. I know. Incredible. I know. I don't know how he does it because he do. He has a, he has a son and a wife and a full time job, and I don't know how he does it. He's incredibly successful at it. What do you wish you had known? Oh, I mean, publishing is <laughs> <laughs> publishing yeah. is a, is a is its own entity. So to mm-hmm. be able to separate what is writing and the joy of writing and what you love and what is the art versus the business is something to recognize probably earlier than later because they are extremely different. Like I love writing. I would write. And I did, you know, before I got paid before, you know, Mm -hmm. it is something that's in you. This is like not a get rich quick scheme. This is Mm -hmm. the worst one. If you, that's what you were going for. As far as telling myself anything about publishing is that it's not a meritocracy. 
it masquerades as one like it pretends mm-hmm. to be it pretends like oh if you write a really good story it's going to get bought it's going to be a bestseller and like that's just not how mm-hmm. it goes you know a lot of luck is involved and sometimes it's nepotism like a lot of times it's they invested big upfront, and so they kind of make sure to follow through with that and mm-hmm. so your advance level will really dictate how much they support it on the writing side I would say to recognize when you're burned out like recognize that when you're just sitting in the chair to sit in the chair to cut that time like that 100 words that you're going to get and like the hour and a half you sit in that chair are not going to be worth it you're probably going to delete them so like get out of the chair two hours earlier go I don't know even go sit on the couch go do something else that's not writing and your mind will kind of relax and it'll be better next time you're in the chair rather than just trying to push through. You have to be really disciplined because you have to recognize it Mm -hmm. because it seems counterproductive, especially if you're a gunner and you, you know, you got to get those words on the page and you want to get this finished. And then you sit there and nothing good is coming. You feel like, Oh, I can't quit. Go take a walk. You know, I need to stay here and work. But I think the longer you're in it, you do realize you have to figure out when that hits that you're putting crap on the page and you just need to walk away. And it's hard, but it's like, dude, you're you're making this worse. You know? Yeah, the diminishing returns point is what I call it. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a- necessarily bad, but you're not getting that same level of focus and productivity that you were. When you think of it, when it does become a business, when you are mm-hmm. publishing and uh, you're on deadline, like the fewer hours you honestly spend, the more money you're making per hour. So like right. that should only really be a motivation to be in the chair less, to make your time more effective and like not sit there playing a farm game on your phone. <laughs> Because I I totally have two and I definitely do it. So that was definitely for me to remember not to do that as I'm supposed to be writing. Yeah, I think that that would be what I would tell myself. Have you read anything interesting lately? So I am doing research for my possible middle grade horror opportunity. I don't know what to call it. Um, (laughs) I'm reading Spirit Hunters by Ellen O. And Mm -hmm. it is creepy and fantastic like it's and and it's kind of it's scary like if I were 10 I would be scared it's about this house that has a ghost and this family that moves in and you know all the things that ensue and that she's been hospitalized before for something that happened that she can't remember it's a really good scary middle grain I just read Light Lark it's a TikTok success book um Ah. doing quite well and it's an it's an interesting story about the rulers of these but I want to say five different kingdoms, maybe six, to meet to compete in these games. And it was so something that I wanted to comp to for future possible uh, YA fantasy. So I was reading that and it was entertaining. So are you doing a lot of the, speaking of TikTok, are you doing a lot of the TikTok promotion stuff Mm-mm. at all? No, I have dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't do camera stuff. That's not my medium. Yeah. I just sort of ship post on Twitter. (laughs) Do you have any advice for new writers? Read, read a lot, read broadly, especially if you're hoping to get an agent or, um, I mean, reading a little enriched either way, but if you're hoping to get into publishing or get your manuscript published, read things that have been published in the last two to three years, because you get a sense of what is being picked up in the market. You get a sense of what the expectations are for the genre, what the expectations are for your particular type of story. If anything, you should know 
what your competition is or what you hope your competition will be. Plus anything you read, I think kind of will stick in your brain and become inspiration for later on. I feel that way about what you watch on Netflix and Mm -hmm. other streaming services. You know, something may spark an idea. Something may one day lead to, like I was watching Squid Games a lot. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) why am I so into this? And then now I'm writing a YA fantasy that comps just wood games. Yeah. So you never really know where your inspiration is going to strike. So, you know, it enriches you as a reader. It shows you where the market is, shows you what your competition is, and also can spark ideas. So that's definitely my biggest piece of advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. To learn more, visit meredithireland.wordpress.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.